Hello, everyone. Today we visit a menagerie of the imagination. This is Breakfast with Gilgamesh. From the day we distinguished ourselves from other life on this planet by telling stories to each other, we've been fascinated by animals. Our earliest expressions of our imagination were depictions of animal life, and not just what we saw when we ventured out into the world to hunt and forage, but animals who existed only in our imaginations. We are, as a species, fundamentally interested in life outside ourselves. As social creatures, we love, hate, and fear the living things who share our planet. We seek to understand, command, and connect with animals. For most of our existence, we've lived in a fractious, combative state with other forms of fauna. Our relationships with prey, predator, and partner have defined us and how we interact with our environment for hundreds of thousands of years. As civilization developed, our practical relationships with animals changed, but not our spiritual relationships with them. Our tallest walls could not shake us of our fear of leopards and snakes. Our biggest cities could not dilute our urge for companionship from dogs, cats, and birds. All our greatest inventions and social innovations could not, to this day, limit our fascination with animals both real and imagined. The biggest pop culture entities on the planet are Winnie the Pooh, Hello Kitty, Mickey Mouse, and Pokemon. Our brains are wired to be compelled by the things that run, crawl, swim, and fly. Menageries are collections of animals put on display for the pleasure of people of high society. They've existed for centuries. Rulers from all over Europe and Asia curated collections of wild beasts, perhaps as a way of pronouncing humanity's dominance over the natural world. Exotic life forms from far-off lands were displayed and catalogued as curiosities and wonders. Scholars and natural historians would spend centuries collecting second- and third-hand accounts, describing supposed creatures from far-off lands. This trend of zoology by word of mouth would dominate much of European understanding of the natural world for many centuries, collected in bestiary books and illuminated manuscripts describing the behaviors, origins, and medicinal properties of creatures great and small. These accounts were, of course, by and large, totally inaccurate. There would be very little accurate scientific understanding of the natural world before Darwin's theory of evolution, along with similar observations around the same time, would rock the naturalist profession and fundamentally change how we thought about animal behavior and origin forever. But even now, with our understanding and command of evolutionary biology, the preoccupation to imbue animals with spiritual and metaphorical meaning remains as strong as ever. Today, public zoos exist in every major city on Earth, a cherished destination for people the world over to experience nature close up in a safe environment, and in more recent years, an unfortunately necessary valuable resource for preservation and education. Today, we're going to take a stroll through a zoo of the imagination and meet some of the animals we as a species have collected in our stories over the centuries. Some are very old entities. Some are more recent. Some were at one time believed to be extant, and some are purely spiritual in nature. These creatures are part of us, part of our journey. They're exaggerated reflections of our relationship with the natural world, the parts of our psyche that consider animals beyond the terms of sustenance, enemies, or companions. As I describe these creatures, I want you to imagine them in your mind's eye. Give them breath, scent, color. In this way, we bring them to life together. The creatures we're about to visit belong to the cultural traditions of various peoples around the world, such as Syria, Afghanistan, China, Japan, 
the Inuit nations of the Yukon and Northwest Territory, Aboriginal communities of Australia, and others. The interpretations are my own, and my responsibility in the tradition of the oral storyteller, so I hope you'll forgive any embellishment or changes I indulge in as I describe them. So now, let's begin with a trip through the menagerie of the imagination. Some of the oldest, most culturally significant stories and parables we know from our ancient past concern animals. Like all great stories, propagation begins at home. Children hear bedtime stories, learn lessons about their world through metaphor. Sometimes these stories are simple life lessons, but sometimes they're frightful and disturbing. The Yarmayahu lives in the fig and fruit trees of the Australian wilderness. It is a being of the dream time, the primordial state from which all existence sprung according to the aboriginal peoples of Australia. The Yarmayahu stands shorter than a man, but larger than a child. It has long fingers, an immense head proportional to its size, and a wide gaping maw like a snake with black lips. But there are no teeth in this mouth. Some say Yaramayahu's body is covered in thick, wiry hair. Some say it has no hair at all. But in every account of the devil, it is red, the color of its main source of sustenance, human blood. You see, the Yaramayahu waits patiently for children to pass under its fig tree. And when that person is occupied with a light snack or a reprieve from the sun, Yaramayahu springs forth with its long fingers. Each finger is coated in suction cups like the tendrils of an octopus, and with them it draws the blood from its victims' bodies. The cruelty of the Yaramayahu is of particular interest. You see, it doesn't simply suck the blood from its victims and leave it at that. It only sucks enough blood from its prey to leave them incapacitated, but still very much alive. At this, the Yaramayahu drops their victim to the ground and opens its immense gape and begins swallowing them, compressing the writhing person in its toothless mouth. This disgusting ritual saps the energy from Yaramayahu, and upon swallowing his victim, must rest. As it sleeps, it may regurgitate the victim, leaving a brief chance for escape, but upon awakening, it will snatch the poor soul and swallow them again, and again, and again, until, compressed, drained of their humanity, and caked in their own blood, the victim themselves becomes a Yarmayahu. The Aboriginal people of Australia have told stories of spirit men for millennia. Some are kind, and some, like our subject, are not. Yarmayahu is, of course, a whimsy, but there is a very practical purpose for the stories of this creature in a culture whose children, like all children, are prone to running off. The Australian wilderness is unforgiving. Things great and small can cause harm and even death, and so scaring young children into not wandering off should they encounter this horrible thing has proved useful for survival, as well as staving off boredom. People who live in deep connection to the natural environments they inhabit the world over have cultural traditions of body snatchers and child eaters. The Kalupalik of Inuit cultural tradition is a water-dwelling creature which looks very much like a man. It lurks in the waters near the edges and cracks of ice, humming a soft, pleasant tune to lure children toward its grasp. When the child gets too close, Kalupalik snatches them so quickly and ferociously that they can't even scream out to be saved. The Kalupalik's long, slender body is robed in seal or bear fur, very much like a man. The Amauti is a fur jacket with a large pouch at the shoulders which mothers use to carry their infants. 
And in a cruel mockery of this, Kalupalik stows her quarry of kidnapped babies in the pouch to carry off. To what end varies depending on who you ask. Some say she eats the child. Some say she puts them into some kind of perpetual catatonic state and feeds off their blood. And some even say the Kalupalik steals the child to raise its own, creating a new Kalupalik in the process. The Irish Kelpie is a similar creature. It appears as a horse or a pony near a body of water, waiting with no master to attend it. The victim, a weary traveler, approaches and mounts the horse, only to be dragged into the water and eaten. Whether or not these creatures are or ever were truly believed to exist by the people who told these stories matters little to the ubiquity of their presence in folklores around the world. Animals and monsters are useful metaphors for the nebulous danger that faces the young and unprepared who stray too far from their communities, parents, and behavioral expectations. Stories of dangerous creatures lurking just beyond the realm of the known, who possess nefarious intent and great power, are not simply the purview of bedtime parables for small children. Adults are just as liable to believe a tall tale of a fantastical beast which exists just beyond the horizon. Birds have been a powerful totem in human storytelling forever. Human beings are masters of the environments they pervade, but until very recently, we had no way of commanding the sky. Our fascination with flight led us to mythologize and spiritualize birds. Our storm and sky gods take the form of eagles and falcons. In the mythologies of the ancient Sumerian and Akkadians, Anzu is a bird god who steals the sacred tablets of fate, which convert prophecy and divine power upon those who read them. Anzu makes camp on a great mountain and uses his powerful breath of fire and water to repel the gods' attempts to retrieve the tablets. That is until Ninurta, the lord of farming and hunting, uses his mighty bow to fell Anzu from afar and retrieve the tablets for the god-king Enlil. We can see here a god of cultivation and hunting, the ways human beings command their environment, using human ingenuity to retrieve power from that which eludes men, the kingdom of the air. The elusiveness and fearsomeness of predatory birds has long fascinated and compelled human beings. We imagine storms conjured up by the wingbeats of colossal birds who command the will of the skies as the gods themselves. In the Arabian Nights, the sailor Sinbad is shipwrecked when his crew comes across an enormous dome, which is later revealed to be the egg of a rook, an immense bird who feeds on horses, elephants, and cows, plucking them from the sky as an eagle plucks a rabbit from the field. These immense birds were, at one point, thought to be real. Marco Polo insisted they hailed from the island of Madagascar, and the Grand Khan of Malabar collected their feathers. The giant eagle may have lived at one time. The enormous Puakai, or Haas Eagle, terrorized the southern tip of New Zealand for millennia until its main source of food, the flightless moa bird, was driven to extinction by prehistoric human settlers. In China, Shengyang is a one-legged bird who brings rain. It's sometimes depicted as colossal, even larger than the rook, its wings spreading over the whole sky and the rain wicking from its feathers. However, there are versions of this creature which are no larger than a sparrow. It is said that the Prince of Qi beheld a Shengyang bird dancing in his garden. Alarmed by this strange creature's presence, he consulted the great sage Kung Fu Xie, who told the prince to build many dams and dikes around his kingdom, for a great flooding rain was foretold by the little bird. The prince, knowing well the wisdom of this sage, heeded his advice, and sure enough, many homes and lives were spared when a torrential storm befell the kingdom of Qi. Our final winged creature, like the hook, was thought to have been extant largely through the power of rumor and third-hand account. The griffin of Bactria, now called Afghanistan, is roughly the size of a wolf, 
It has the white face of an eagle with its long curved beak, and its front legs are tipped with great curling talons, but its body resembles a lion, and great white wings sprout from its shoulders. The animal's favorite prey is humans and their mounts, which it stalks with utter persistence high in its mountain home. Reports of griffins range from the Indian Himalayas all the way to the Scandinavian mountains of Norway. Where there are mountains, there are griffins hiding among them. Griffins were believed to be keepers of all the world's gold. They build nests made of emeralds to ward off venomous serpents from their children, and the men of Bactria were purported to use their claws as drinking cups and their ribs as bows. To hunt and kill a griffin was a near-impossible feat, but the man who could would be revered as the mightiest of warriors. To this day, these accounts have sparked the imagination of European travelers and the aristocrats who are their patrons. Griffins are still used as a symbol of bravery and strength, as well as fierceness and violence. Variously, images of the griffin have been used in Effigy of Christ for its lion-like and noble physical traits, and the devil himself for its avaricious, violent nature. Stories of griffins and other fearsome creatures captured the imaginations of medieval scholars and naturalists. A sprawling tapestry of broken telephone created fantastical accounts of deadly creatures from the jungles of India and the sand-swept wilds of Egypt. It is in these accounts which we find the manticore. Manticore's almost beggar description. They are immense beasts who walk on four legs very much like a lion, but unlike a lion, they possess a face like a man with piercing blue eyes. Their mouths are full of three discreet rows of gnashing teeth, which they use to carve the flesh of their preferred prey, men. In point of fact, the name manticore comes from the Persian martikoras, which means man-eater. Their fur is as red as the blood they lust for. They are fast, agile, and strong. They can hide in tall grass and dense forest, but their bold, aggressive nature rarely necessitates this. They kill men with impunity, leaving not even a drop of blood unconsumed. They stalk their prey and subdue them with their tails, which resemble that of a scorpion, with a great barb on the tip, which can even be fired like an arrow from a bow, to stop running prey. Accounts of manticores began in the mythologies of India and Persia, but Greek and Italian naturalists and philosophers insisted on their existence, taking in accounts from travelers who say they encountered the beast in the wilds of India or Ethiopia. If the lion is the king of the beasts, then the manticore is a cruel tyrant. The manticore is not the only creature to strike fear in the imaginations of medieval thinkers. Stories of a king of serpents pervaded natural history in its early stages, this creature, known as the Basilisk, terrified ancient storytellers. It was said that when Perseus cut the head off the Gorgon Medusa and flew back to Greece, the blood from the severed head dripped onto the earth of Egypt and was so poisonous that it created a desert. From this blood came every sort of snake there is, and their king was the Basilisk. The Basilisk cannot be described because just to behold it is to succumb to its venom. In one tale, a soldier named Morris stabbed one, and when a drop of its blood dripped from the sword onto the ball of his thumb, he died on the spot. It is feared by every other living thing on earth. Where it slithers, crops die, and the earth becomes infertile. The sound it emanates is said to chill the blood of men frozen. This terrifying creature which no one has seen began to morph over time from a simple, rather small serpent into an incredible monster with the head of a rooster, eight scampering legs, leathery pronged wings like those of a bat, and the tail of a serpent to bring to mind its origins. 
It wore a crown to legitimize its reign as king of serpents. As time went on, and explanations of this creature's existence were extrapolated, its origin changed from a direct descendant of a mythical gorgon to the abomination of nature which occurs when a cock's egg is hatched by the care of a serpent. As this story perpetuated, these variations of the basilisk found new context and a new name. The cockatrice, who made its home in the deserts of Egypt as well as the Welsh forest Radmar where it sucked the blood of naughty children, became a widely understood portent of impending, inevitable doom. To behold the cockatrice may not immediately mean your instant death, but perhaps an even greater tragedy to come. Animals as portents of doom are a consistent feature in most myth-making traditions. In the British Isles, we find a corruption of a familiar companion in the Black Shuck. Known by many names, and with a long-stretching tradition dating back millennia, the Black Dog is a central figure in countless European storytelling traditions. Our subject is a fearsome shadow, roughly the size of a calf and jet black with shaggy, knotted blocks of wet hair. The Black Shuck's blazing red eyes may be the only way to tell it is near. It creeps through the dark on rainy nights, illuminated only by lightning, its braying howl preceding thunderclaps over the communities of rural Suffolk and Yorkshire. A story goes that on a stormy Sunday night in 1577, a church mass was interrupted by the intrusion of the beast. It ripped babes from the arms of pious mothers and gored the men who tried to stop it. On the Isle of Man, equidistant between Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, is the Castle Peel, haunted by the Black Mouth Dog, whose presence is preceded by the sound of rattling chains. It stalks the roads outside the castle grounds and leaps on the backs of unwary travelers on lonely roads. In northern France, the beast of Govidon was an immense black beast dog who would attack people by mutilating their heads and killing them. Louis XV, disturbed by the stories of the beast's meals left on the sides of the roads, sent his best hunters to capture and kill it, but each lost their head in the misty moors of its domain. It was a pious farmer, Jean Castile, who managed to fell the animal by praying for the Lord's protection before embarking on his quest. These tales pervade the British Isles to this day as ghost stories and detective fiction. The black dog is ever-present, just out of sight to the unwary traveler on a long country road at night. Once upon a time, the Emperor Fuxi was resting by a bank of the Yellow River of Shandong Province, contemplating the many complexities of communication and law. At this moment, he sensed a presence close by, and lifted his eyes from contemplation to behold a magnificent creature. Here was a four-legged animal, not unlike an elk, with hooved feet, but where fur should be were scales of a fish which glimmered in the sunlight. It had the head of a lion and a long, slender horn sprouting from the center of its head. This auspicious animal is called a kitten, and this one, beheld by Emperor Fuxi, wore on its scaly pelt eight blazing symbols which the emperor committed to memory. After his encounter, Fuxi would use those symbols as the basis for the eight trigrams, the basis of Chinese calligraphy. The kitten's divine presence is synonymous with the folkloric traditions of imperial China. Kitten were said to be seen only during the reign of a great ruler, or before the birth of a great sage. They were also said to appear on the palace grounds just before the death of an emperor. Their appearance was marked by a time of peace. 
Yan Zhengzai, a young expectant mother, beheld a Kirin in the 5th century BCE. She had come to Ni Mountain near the city of Kufu to pray for a son. The Kirin, which appeared wreathed in flame, left her a tablet of jade prophesying the birth of a throneless king. This prophecy came to pass as she later gave birth to Kong Fu Shi, known in the West as Confucius. Kong Fu Shi's contributions to Chinese society are innumerable. He is perhaps the most important single figure in all of Chinese history. His philosophies and the myths that surround his life would form much of the basis of pre-revolutionary Chinese society for millennia after. Kung Fu Shi's relationship with the Kirin did not end with the foretelling of his birth. He would later describe with great woe the death of a Kirin by a pack of hunters in the final entry of his Spring and Autumn Annals, one of the most significant pieces of writing in all of human history. Kung Fu Shi's death would be foretold by a charioteer trampling a Kirin during a hunt, a startling approximation of the events he described in his annals. The Ming Emperor Zheng He traveled to East Africa by boat, and upon his return, displayed a pair of creatures he claimed to be the legendary Kirin. They were described as elk-like, but much bigger, white with golden spots like fish scales along its entire hide, long necks, a tail like a horse, and black tongues with a pair of horns on the top of their heads. Today, this animal is pretty easily identified, but what could 13th century Chinese aristocrats know of giraffes? The Kirin are beings of peace and honor, but when justice calls for action, they could be formidable. There is a tale of a great sage who kept the kitten at court. When a serious crime occurred, the sage would present the convicted to the animal, who would read the depths of the accused's soul, and if they were found guilty of the crime, the kitten would bathe them in the sacred fire of its breath, annihilating them. Kitten appear throughout Eastern Asian folkloric traditions, from Japan, where it is said they walk on grass without disturbing it, and flowers grow beneath their feet, to Vietnam, where dancers build effigies of the creatures and bring them to the windows of the devout to drop coins in their mouth as a plea for good luck and fortune in the coming new year. As sacred as the phoenix, as fearsome as the dragon, and as elusive as the unicorn, the kitten endures to this day as a central example of the ways in which human beings imbue nature with inherent divinity and dignity. I, like most children, Love to scour the illustrated mythology references in my school library. Within were hundreds of wonders, dramatic illustrations of these beasts of the imagination, each with a fascinating story attached. I spent much of my childhood reading and rereading these kinds of books, borrowing them over and over again. As an adult, the impulse to lose myself in the sundry worlds of these creatures has not dimmed. They speak to our most primal proclivities, are a constant source of wonder and amusement. Through these stories, I developed an interest in real animals, both the ones who populate the Earth now and the ones who ruled the planet before us. I'm no scientist. Hell, I'm not even much of a mythologist, but as a human being whose head has been in the cloud since the day he could read, fantastical animals have been a source of joy and comfort for my entire life. From the struggles of St. George and Bellerophon subduing hideous monsters, to catching and raising digital monsters in egg-shaped computer toys, and indulging in more packs of Pokemon cards than I'd care to admit. My interest is not unique. These creatures compel something inherent in us, something fundamental about how we experience the world. If real animals are fascinating because they reflect so much of our own behaviors and social structures, imagined animals are fascinating because they reflect our deepest subconscious. Our connection with the natural world has never been more combative than right now. 
as we destroy massive swaths of natural space and hollow the world's resources out in order to feed, clothe, and house an ever-growing human populace, the consequences of our unprecedented command over nature become less metaphor told and more prophecy fulfilled. But nature will always be here. Since the Industrial Revolution, the impetus to farm capital from nature has exploded as the driving force of human ingenuity, exploration, and innovation. Our modern world, which supplanted the ancient one and regards it as a time of superstition and myth, has left us in a precarious dilemma. We are on a collision course between the resources needed to sustain our modern world and the resources available to sustain it. When the last human being dies, there will still be a natural world to swallow our skyscrapers, factories, and podcast microphones, and replace them with life. Perhaps that is the true basis of our eternal fascination with the natural world and our relationship with it. Not that we can commend it to our will, but that it will endure us, just as it gave birth to us. We know on a spiritual level that we cannot separate ourselves from it. Its fate is our fate. Its death is our death. Its vengeance is our due. As we understand the natural world better than Pliny, or Aristotle, or even Kung Fu Xi, as the ghost dogs and fig tree vampires fade, they make way for new spiritual, moral, and practical connections with the natural world and the dangers of storms foretold by creatures of myth and shadow are replaced by the certainty of climate change and widespread human displacement. Our stories are much the same. We replace stories of creatures which control the weather with stories of avenging entities which rise from the warming sea and crush our cities underfoot. The combative relationship stays the same, only the metaphor, and more to the point, the urgency, changes. Mystery and wonder are replaced by dread and confusion. We know what has to happen. We have to bail out on this game of chicken we're playing with nature. Summon the will to hit the brakes, swerve the car, make peace with ourselves in this world. But can we summon the will to do so before we collide? We'll find out soon enough. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash breakfastwithgilgamesh. You can follow me on Twitter at GilgameshPod and on Facebook as Breakfast with Gilgamesh. A special thanks to Sam Beck, who designed my logo, Thomas Holden, who composed the music you heard throughout, and to all my friends and partners involved in this project. Next episode, The Rise of the Great Sage Equal to Heaven. This is Breakfast with Gilgamesh.